This is the Candeo Equipping Podcast. Well, welcome to the Candeo Equipping Podcast. My name is Jake, and I'm the Teaching and Equipping Director here at Candeo. And we've been going through on Sunday nights a class called the Biblical Teaching Lab. And this is week two of that class and the audio from the live session uh, got a little messed up. And so I'm just going to do a recap of what we looked at uh, in week two of the Biblical Teaching Lab. And and to just kind of refresh your memory, if, if you've been following along with us up to this point and listen to the first week, last week we talked about the importance of observation, right? We looked at the different um, ways that we observe a text as far as looking at the repeated words and the repeated phrases and uh, and what words mean and how they're connected and how the whole thing fits within the context of the book itself. And we we did the exercise with the rainbow trout where we made a bunch of observations. And, and what we said was that if we if we would just walk by the the meat counter or the fish case at High V and just took a glance at it, we'd never we would have never gotten that many um, observations or seen that many things about the fish if we would just take a glance and keep on moving. But instead, when we stop and we take the time and we we look intently at something, we we see a, a whole lot more than what we would if, if we just uh, looked at it in passing. And so last week, we looked at the importance of observation. And then we talked about some of the pitfalls that can happen uh, when when we don't put in the time and put in the effort to really understand uh, a text. And so, and I even referenced one of those pitfalls in the message on Sunday morning where uh, where it talked about sometimes people use the Bible like a like a drunk uses a lamppost, right? Where it's more for support than it is for illumination. It's more to uh, to be able to just use the Bible to to help me say what I already wanted to say anyway, uh, rather than letting the Bible illuminate our path uh, and wherever that would take us for it to really shine the light and show us the way. And and we submit to and we stand under the authority of the Word of God. And and so what we're talking about this week is. Is interpretation. And uh, real quickly, basically what we're talking about, remember, we're walking through this class. It's, it's a real f- like flyover, um, breakneck pace of, of what would be a, a hermeneutics class at, at, a, at a Bible college or in, in seminary. And so, um, but what we're talking about really is, uh, is biblical exegesis. Okay. And so what, what exegesis simply means is that it means that we're we're looking to pull meaning out of the text. Exegesis means that we're looking to pull meaning out of the text as opposed to something called eisegesis. And if you're taking notes or uh, if you want to drop that one in your next Scrabble game, that's E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S, eisegesis. And what that means is that is that we read meaning into the text. So exegesis means that we're pulling meaning out of the text. Eisegesis means that we're reading meaning into the text. And there's a big difference there because one, the first one, exegesis, really is we're looking to to the Bible for illumination. We're coming to the Bible as best we can objectively, right? Because we all have our own presuppositions. We all have our own understandings, our own context, our own cultures. Um, we, We bring a lot to the text before we even start reading that we may not even be aware of, our own assumptions and the way that we understand the world, our own worldview. And what we want to do as, as best we can, um, knowing that there's obstacles in, in trying to do this, but as best we can coming to the scriptures with, with a neutral 
stance with a neutral lens, with a blank slate, not looking to, uh, to immediately interpret everything through our lens, but really to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience, to see things through their lens, to, to walk a mile in their shoes, as you would say, and, and to really grasp things in their town, right? And so as we talk through this observation, interpretation, application, observation and interpretation really are, uh, we're staying in their town. We're, not, we're, we're still not looking to figure out how to apply this to our town because we want to understand what it would have meant to the original audience, and we want to find the meaning that exists in the text rather than bringing our own worldview and presuppositions to the text. And, and this can happen This can happen real subtly, actually. If, if you come to the Bible and you read something and it doesn't quite match up with your worldview, it's really easy sometimes to, to try to find a different meaning because you don't like the meaning that you found. And so it, it's it's things like, well, well, God, God couldn't be like that, or I couldn't worship a God like X, Y, and Z. And, and, and we begin to kind of impose our own meaning onto the text to try to make it mean what we want it to mean. And really, the Bible, some uh, the Bible should offend us at times, right? If if the Bible, if if we always agree with what the Bible is saying, just naturally, if we always agree, then it's quite possible that we're we're reading meaning into the text because the Bible will and should offend our natural worldviews and our natural presuppositions, and should shape us and change us, and we should feel resistance at times to the meaning of the text compared to the way that I want to think or the way that I want to live. Like that, that is good, and, and the Bible uh, should be the thing that shapes that for us. And so, what we want to do. Is biblical exegesis. We want to pull meaning out of the text rather than reading meaning into the text. And what biblical exegesis does is that it is that it gives the biblical context rather than our own context control over the meaning of the text. And what that means is that, like I said, we want to walk a mile in the shoes of the original audience, and we want to give the biblical context control over the meaning of the text. We want to listen intently until we know how the text fits within the overall message of the book as well. And so one of the things we talked about last week was I encouraged all of us as we're studying through a particular text of scripture to to also read the whole book, to read it from from beginning to end, and then, and that'll help us understand our text in light of of the book as a whole, and so that we can understand how does this text fit within the overall message of the book itself. And then another thing we want to do in biblical exegesis is we want to see the structure and the emphasis of the text. We want to see the structure and the emphasis of the text. And so that'll come from really careful observation. And as we move into interpretation, we're trying to look for the the predominant themes and the emphasis of the text and let the context of of where the passage sits in the book help us understand what the emphasis actually is. Because if we just take a text and pull it out of its context, we can begin to emphasize certain things that weren't actually the primary um, intention of the author. This, this can happen with parables a lot, where a parable uh, is, is, is a story uh, used to emphasize a certain truth. 
But sometimes if you get so close to the parable, you start reading into it things that aren't actually there. And, and, and something like, like allegory can happen. And what allegory is, is that you take, you take little things and you expand them so much that, that they end up meaning or symbolizing something that they were never originally intended to mean or to symbolize. And so we want to give the context control over the meaning. We want to listen intently until we understand how the text fits within the overall message of the book. And we want to see the structure and the emphasis of the text. And so what we want to do as we give the, the context the uh, control, primarily what, what I'm talking about here in, in real simply is we want to give the historical context control and we want to give the literary context control. And, and we're going to talk about those two things. So first, the historical context. And here's what this is. The historical context of your text is the setting the culture, the occasion, the geography, the, the political climate, and the predominant industry. That, that's, just a, that's just a short list. There's a lot of things that go into culture, right? And so uh, one of the things that, that I want to grow in my understanding of a text, I, I don't personally do this really well in understanding the geography even of, of where a particular text was written and the people to whom it was written. They lived in a certain place like a certain geographical location. And, and that's important to understand, and that helps us understand uh, how the author is using language to communicate to these people. One example is in Revelation when we look at the letter to the church of Laodicea. Now, the geography of the city of Laodicea is actually interesting and important in understanding what uh, what John is saying uh, to the church of Laodicea. And, and what I mean is that Laodicea was actually part of of kind of like a triad of cities where you had Laodicea, you had Colossae, and you had Heropolis. And in, uh, in Laodicea kind of sat, you know, uh, in, in the middle, I guess you could say, of this kind of like triangle. And, and from one city came a, 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 a hot water spring. And from another city came a cold water spring. And those two springs, before they got to the city of Laodicea, they converged and they came together. And so you had the hot water and the cold water coming together and creating this lukewarm spring. And so when the author, when John says to the Laodiceans, I wish that you were hot or cold, but instead you are lukewarm, what the Laodiceans would have understood is like, oh, you mean lukewarm, like like what, like what our spring is down the street, right? Like, like they would have had a very uh, keen awareness of what lukewarm water was because of their geography. And that really helps us see the text through their lens and to hear the writing with their ears. And so we want to, we want to look at the setting, the culture, the occasion, why was the, the text written? Um, what was, what was going on in the church or what was going on with the audience that, um, that kind of made it so that the author would even want to write to them? Uh, were there any issues going on? Were they under hardships? Uh, did they need correction? What was the political climate? Who who was in political power at the time? And, and like I referenced last week, where uh, where if you would a hundred years from now read our newspapers today, uh, it would you would need to understand the political climate going on in world events in order to best understand um, how to read our newspaper or how to read our letters or something like that. Um, another thing is predominant industry. Uh, generally, 
uh, kind of like here in the Cedar Valley, we've got we've got predominant industries. John Deere is one of them, and so understanding the the agricultural and the engineering industry uh, in our location helps us understand uh, the kind of audience that the Cedar Valley has. In the same way, the biblical audience had often had predominant industries that helped shape the way that the writer communicated with these audiences, whether it was textiles or agriculture or whatever. Um, and that'll help us understand when they use particular analogies or particular illustrations in a text, understanding the predominant industry can really uh, help us with that. And so um, I just want to throw out there a few tools to to help us understand and determine the historical context, because what we're really doing, we, we don't get a lot of this for free, right? We have to study and mine out to begin to understand the historical context of of a text because it, it it's not just going to straight up give it to us. We're, we're really reading somebody else's mail in a lot of ways. And so a few tools that are helpful in, in beginning to understand the historical context uh, are the, the introductory sections of Bible commentaries. And if you have a study Bible, maybe there's, a, there's an introduction at the beginning of a book that kind of helps give you some of the historical context of that book. In the same way, Bible commentaries, and I, and I hand it out uh, uh, some selected readings from the introduction of the New American Commentary. I handed those out to our our group A, B, and C of of the teaching lab, and and hopefully that uh, that helps you as you understand the passages that you'll teach at the end of this class. But those introductory those introductory sections, even though they're long and uh, they can be kind of difficult to sift through, sometimes it's it's absolutely worth the time and the effort that we would put in. Uh, before we begin to study a book and begin to study a passage within a book to read those sections so that we can better understand the historical context of the people that would have heard this message. Another helpful uh, tool is a Bible, our Bible encyclopedias and Bible dictionaries. A lot of times uh, for these, you won't necessarily you know, look for a particular text, but you'll be looking for particular words or for particular uh, ideas or something like that. And, and these encyclopedias and dictionaries will help you, uh, will help us better understand what these words and these, these different uh, concepts meant in biblical times. And so... Uh, real quick, another, uh, and I've got four websites that I'll just throw out there real quick that can be helpful for you. So BibleStudyTools.com has some encyclopedias and, and uh, Bible dictionaries. Uh, Blue Letter Bible is 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 a really great resource. They have an app as well. Uh, it's it's a somewhat it's it's poorly des- designed aesthetically, but don't let the don't let the the poor design deter you from. Uh, from what blueletterbible.com really, really has to give us. And, and what we can do when we go to Blue Letter Bible, which is great, is uh, you can go to a view mode called the, the interlinear, and that'll actually put the Greek words uh, underneath your text or the Hebrew words. Our Bible wasn't originally written in English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew and with a little bit of Aramaic kind of sprinkled in. And what uh, Blue Letter Bible does is that it it connects those the original language words to the English translation, and so and and we can kind of dive down deep into what what those what the individual words actually mean, which can help us understand how they're being used in their context. Uh, another website is called thebibleproject.com, and. And this is this is an interesting website because what they've done is uh, they've created a, a ton of like animated videos 
that uh, that help help us understand overarching biblical themes, but also will will give an overview of I think almost I think pretty much every book of the Bible. You can go to that website, pick your book of the Bible, and they'll have an introductory video. They're usually about seven to eight minutes long, and it'll just kind of in a in an interesting kind of entertaining way give you give us an overview of the date, uh, the date of writing, the occasion, the author, the audience, the setting, stuff like that. It's really cool and really helpful. Um, what I would say though, when using the Bible project in these kind of introductory ways, uh, don't just automatically, uh, uh, how would I say it? Don't, don't let the Bible project video be your only point of study, right? It, if we have to choose between reading 80 pages or watching an eight minute video, most of us, if, if we're, if we're Western enough are going to want to just watch the eight minute video. I don't want to read the book. Just I'll wait till the movie comes out. Uh, don't use the Bible project that way. Like still do the reading because basically what the Bible project is doing and, it, and it's helpful for this reason is that it's giving you a flyover of, of the historical context. Now, sometimes uh, there are like with the book of Hebrews, for instance, uh, there are some things that that are kind of more difficult to understand and how to understand the historical context. And so it's not quite as easy as just um, of, as just listening to somebody else's understanding and interpretation of the historical context and then just accepting that as our own. Uh, we still need to put in the time and the effort to be able to understand that. But the Bible Project can be really helpful, uh, and I would suggest that to you. So the last one, and this is real quick, uh, is, is Logos.com. And Logos.com itself doesn't have... Uh, doesn't have these study materials, but what Logos is is it's a it's a Bible study software that um, that I that I used throughout seminary and and to be honest, I use it not not exclusively, but it's pretty close. I use Logos for about eighty to ninety percent of my Bible study because it's got it's got all the translations that I need that I need. It's got a ton of commentaries. It has encyclopedias. It has atlases. It, it has pretty much every tool that you would ever want to be able to study your Bible really in depth. Now, the the thing that may make it prohibitive for some people is that uh, is that it does cost money, right? And so uh, depending on the package that you get uh, determines the, the the level of financial investment that you're looking at. I think I think maybe the base package is is $100 or something like that. And then it goes up from there to to being quite a bit depending on what you want but but if 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 you're really serious about wanting to have a lot of of bible study resources all in one place uh, logos i can't think of a better software to to kind of plug your way i don't get anything from them for saying this it's just it's it's a tool that i use every week if not every day as I'm studying the Bible, and it has been invaluable in helping me both develop as a student of the Bible and also as a teacher of the Bible. And so logos.com, you can check that out there, and that'll have a lot of great tools for you. So uh, historical context, that's what we're talking about. We want to give the context a control, and we in one of those contexts is the historical context. Now, there's also the literary context. And what that means, like we said earlier, is that we we must know what the book is about in order to understand how the passage fits within the book as a whole. And so so our selected passages don't live autonomously. They're connected to the verses and the chapters before it and to the verses and the chapters 
after it. And so what we want to do is we want to read the book as a whole, understand where our text fits within that book, within the verses around it, within the larger section of the book, within the rest of the book. And then eventually we want to understand even how the theological concept fits within the rest of the Bible. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. And so the literary context, we want to look around our text and that'll help us understand how our particular text is being used to make the point that the author is trying to make. So next, what we want to look at is in, in all through the all through our time in this class, at least in these first three weeks, what we're doing with the observation, interpretation, application is we're going through something called the interpretive journey. And so you might have referenced, you might have you might have noticed me referencing uh, things like their town. And what the interpretive journey is is, is it's kind of a picture of of going from one town to another that has a river in between. And so what we want to first do in observation and interpretation is we want to grasp the text in their town. And then the second thing we want to do is we want to measure the width of the river to cross. So if you imagine you're, you're in the town of the original audience and you're trying to move toward our day, there's a river that, 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 lay, that lies between us, and that river is, is the historical and the literary context. So the culture, the language, the time, the situation, the geography, all of the things that are different from, from how they would have understood culture to how we understand our culture and our time. So we want to measure the width of the river. Uh, their culture will be different than and similar to ours in different ways. Same thing with the language, same thing with the time and the political climate, all that stuff. We want to we recognize those differences and measure that river. And so uh, in, in primarily in this step, we're, we're looking to identify the differences between their situation and ours. So the third step in this interpretive journey is crossing the principalizing bridge. And what that means is that as we go from their town to our town, we've got this river kind of kind of uh, standing in between us. We need a bridge that kind of bridges that gap between them and them back then and us today. And so what we're going to ask is what is the theological principle of this text? And remember, your task is to not create meaning, but is to but is to discover the meaning intended by the author. And so when we're looking at a text, uh, often the, the, the way that they would have understood that and the way that they would have applied that is different than the way that, that we would apply it today. But there, but there is an overarching principle that, uh, that kind of hovers above the context and the language and the time and the situation that we want to identify Right, and so one of the, one of one example, I guess you could say, is uh, is if you look at, uh, I think it's Second Corinthians, um, I think it's eight and nine, where uh, where Paul is talking about taking up co- taking up a collection, and he's talking about generosity. And a lot of times, what can happen is, um, particularly in in Second Corinthians, in, in in those passages, when it's ta- when Paul's talking about generosity, is that we can immediately try to apply. Uh, uh, that principle of generosity just across the board. Um, but really what Paul is talking about is is in he's talking about specifically generosity. He's taking up a collection from among the churches to be able to send financial aid to needy believers in Jerusalem. And so this isn't just uh, speaking of generosity in the sense of like, well, we need to be generous so that the 
so that the youth ministry can go on a on a on a weekend trip to the pool or on some excursion somewhere like like in and look Paul talks about being generous and so let's be generous so that they can do this what Paul specifically is talking about is financial generosity on the part of multiple different churches so that they can pool their money together and send that money to needy believers in Jerusalem and so so while uh, while generosity is kind of the principle, what we also want to do is uh, is let the the Bible. Um, I uh, how how would I say it? Let the Bible constrain our our uh, our application of the principle, and also let it add insight to that. And this is where step four is talking about consulting the biblical map. So what we want to do is how does our theological principle fit within the rest of the Bible? And basically, what we're asking is: Is the principle consistent with with it with the with the with its interpretation and uh, in the way that we might apply it? Is that consistent with the rest of Scripture, or do other portions of Scripture add insight or qualification to the principle? And so, if we go back to our example in Second Corinthians eight and nine, um, the principle of generosity is valid, but we want to consult the biblical map. We want to consult other portions of Scripture. Uh, to better understand and know if our understanding and potential application of this principle is correct, and it'll and the biblical map will either add insight to, like it'll add to it, or it'll add qualification to it, and so it might add an asterisk to it, where it's like, yes, that principle is true, um, but just make sure that you don't try to apply it very, like too specifically um, when the principle itself is probably best meant to be applied generally. And I think that's what happens a lot in the 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, because if you look at 1 Corinthians 16 and Acts 11, again, the purpose of Paul talking about generosity wasn't for the immediate needs of the people being generous. It was for the purpose of meeting the needs of believers that they didn't know in in another town uh, who had tremendous need. And so... Paul's motivation for generosity and the reason why he's talking about it and taking a collection was to meet the need of others, not to meet the need of, of that particular church who would be giving the money. And so we want to consult the biblical map so that we don't uh, apply the scriptures or, or understand the theological principle in a way that is either too broad or too specific. We want to be faithful to the text itself while at the same time um, retaining the principle and then knowing how to apply it. And that's our fifth step in the interpretive journey is grasping the text in our own town. So we've grasped the text in their town. We've we've considered the width of the river to cross. We've looked at the principalizing bridge. So we're looking at the theological principle that is kind of overarching, that kind of transcends time, right? That transcends their town uh, and so that we can move to our town. And so step five, grasping the text in our town. How should Christians today live out these theological principles? And one thing to note is that there will usually only be a few and often only one theological principle, but there will be numerous applications because even because today as we as we communicate biblical truth, there will be one theological principle, but there'll be a lot of different ways that that can be applied in, in the lives of the individuals who are listening to us. And that's why, and we'll get to this a little bit later on in the class itself as we look at structuring uh, what we're going to say. Oftentimes what I'll do is I'll put at the top of my notes, I'll kind of create 
a, a list of my audience. And so if, they, if it's for a Sunday morning, I'll take time to try to imagine the different kinds of people who will be in the audience. So you've got the, the, the engineer or you've got the, the affluent person who has been in the church for a long time or you've got the, the, the unbeliever or you've got the new believer or you've got the college student who comes from this kind of background or, you know, and it doesn't have to be exhaustive, but you at least want to think of, of a variety of audiences so that you can take the theological principle and apply it in a variety of ways, not that you'll ever be able to be exhaustive, um, but just so that you can be aware of the diversity of your audience. Um, we don't want to become too homogenous in our application because sometimes if, if we just have one very specific application, we may end up missing a large part of our audience because, uh, because the theological principle may not apply that specifically to every single person in the room. So, um, But once again, there will usually only be a few and often only one theological principle, but numerous applications. Okay. And so... What we want, there's a few things we want to beware of as we're uh, doing biblical exegesis. And one, uh, one quote from a, from a book called, I think it's called Biblical Exposition. Um, it's a nine marks book, and I, I, for, I can't remember the name of the author. I wish I could because I'd really recommend that book if you want to if you want uh, understand more about expository preaching. And, uh, but one of the things that he says is done in isolation exegesis can lead to teaching that is either overly intellectual or merely imperative. I'll say that again. Done in isolation, exegesis, so, so looking to pull meaning out of the text in this, the study of the, this process of observation and interpretation, if we just stop at observation and interpretation, doing that can lead to teaching that is either overly intellectual or merely imperative. And, and here's here's what that means, is that the overly intellectual approach is that it kind of views the message or the teaching as simply a storage container to house all of the interesting things you found during your study. Like that can be really easy to do, is, is essentially what you can do if you, if you don't connect all these things, as we'll see in observation, interpretation, application, if you just stop at the first two, you can kind of view the message as this kind of junk drawer of interesting observations that, that you like that, that don't really come together to really have like one main point. And so the, over, the overly intellectual approach views the message as simply a storage container to house all the interesting things you found during your study. And what, the, what can end up happening when we do that is that we can essentially just like read through our list of observations uh, or teach through our list of observations. And basically what people walk away saying is, wow, they really like studying their Bible and not saying, wow, how does that text change my life? How should it change the way that I think? How should it change the things that I believe? How should it change the way that I feel? How should it change the way that I live? But instead, if it's just merely intellectual to go, wow, they they learned a lot of interesting things and they kind of relayed that to me. It, 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 can, turn, it can turn teaching more into a lecture than into something that should be life-changing. And so the overly intellectual approach is a danger. Uh, on the other end of, of the spectrum is the merely imperative approach. And what that does is that it, it simply looks for action steps outside of proper biblical or theological context. So action steps outside of, of a proper biblical or theological context can be misapplied. And so what can happen is that 
you, you may not be overly intellectual, but you may be just looking for the imperative verbs and just looking for ways for how this can just directly apply to the life and not in and what happens here is that often this happens when we don't consult the biblical map and when we don't understand how the gospel should affect my understanding of this text or how my text uh, anticipates or reflects upon the gospel because that that's the way that we kind of solve both of these problems we need to ask the question as we're studying our text, how does the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, Jesus as the culmination of God's redemptive plan for mankind, how does the gospel affect my understanding of this text? And how does my text anticipate or reflect upon the gospel? Now, one thing I'll say is that is that in order to preach, in order to preach a gospel-centered sermon or to teach a gospel-centered message, uh, Making it gospel-centered doesn't mean that you always end with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, if, if your text very clearly points to that or uh, is best understood in light of that, then absolutely, we, we, sh- we should, uh, every time we can, kind of like when, uh, when uh, Spurgeon said, all roads lead to London, right? In the same way, the, the, the apex of, of God's biblical and redemptive story is Jesus Christ. And so everything is either pointing towards Christ or is reflecting back upon Christ's completed work. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that in order for it to be gospel-centered, that it, that it always has to have the death, burial, resurrection. There are many times, especially as you're uh, studying and teaching from the Old Testament, where so much of that is, is anticipatory in nature, where it's not like you're looking for Jesus behind every rock and behind every bush. And well, this, this, uh, and, and it becomes, you know, um, uh, everything becomes analogous to Jesus. Well, well, this, this rock, I mean, Jesus is the rock. So this rock here in this Old Testament story must be a reflection of Jesus. And all of a sudden we start to kind of have some weird interpretations. Um, but that isn't to say that, that, that the stories itself or, or what we're reading, um, we should try and seek to understand how does this anticipate, uh, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan in Christ? How does this anticipate it? Or how does my text reflect upon it, right? And so that's kind of the solution that we uh, can employ to, to, prevent from, to prevent ourselves from becoming overly intellectual or merely imperative in our teaching. And so uh, as, we, as we finish up, uh, one of the things that, um, one of the questions that, came up in the teaching lab on Sunday night uh, was the question of genre. And we briefly flew over in the reading for this week. Uh, the, the reference to genre uh, was one that is really important because as we, as we look to study and interpret the text that we have, uh, we need to understand, uh, and this falls under a literary context, we need to understand the genre of writing that we're looking at because the Bible isn't written in one genre. In the same way, if, if you walk into a bookstore, you're going to see different sections of writing. So whether you're in the science, it's been a long time since I've been in a physical bookstore, but you're going to see, uh, you're going to see poetry or history or novel or, um, or science and engineering, whatever it is, the different kind of sections of that bookstore, uh, Whatever section you're in, understanding what section you're in will affect the way and will affect your expectations 
of the book that you pick up from that section. In the same way, the Bible has different genres. It has narrative, it has discourse, it has poetry, it has wisdom literature, apocalyptic. There, there are a variety of genres uh, in the Bible. And often it's not just that that one, that a book, one book of the Bible is... Uh, reflects one genre. Sometimes genres are inter- are intermingled within books, uh, like the book of Job. So you have the first couple chapters where where it's more narrative in nature. And then actually, I, th- I, I want to say it's in chapter three, possibly, uh, where the... Um, where Job's conversation with God and with his friends happened, that a, a large majority of the of the middle section of Job is actually uh, poetry, and so understanding how to read biblical poetry will really help us understand how to interpret those sections of text. Uh, in the same way that understanding how to read biblical narrative and, and how to read the epistles uh, will help us understand. Um, those sections of text. And so uh, one of the things that is really helpful, the Bible Project actually on their website has, a, again, a short video that kind of lays out uh, a little bit of what uh, biblical genre is, literary genre, and how that helps us understand to interpret our text. Uh, the book Grasping God's Word has two entire sections on on biblical genre and how to read different genres, how to approach them, how to read them, and how to interpret them in light of their genre, because that uh, that's vitally important. So, if you want to learn more about genre, that was a that was that was that was a seemed to be a predominant question in in our class session on Sunday that we just we just didn't have the time to get super in depth about. If you if you want to dive more into biblical genre, I would suggest those two resources as. As a starting point, maybe go to uh, go to the Bible Project uh, just kind of to give you some real introductory language, and then um, and then pick up Grasping God's Word on Amazon. I think the paperback version is like twenty dollars or something. It's definitely worth it, um, and that's actually one of the books where we're getting a lot of the content uh, for this class from, uh, particularly in the interpretive, the observation, interpretive application um, portions of this class. And so, I would really suggest that for you. Next week, we're going to look at application and how to bring this all together and how to uh, cross that principalizing bridge and consult the biblical map and then uh, and then bring the text into our town and how to apply it in ways that are faithful to the meaning of the text um, and also apply the theological principle to our day today. So if, if you're in the class, go ahead and read the reading for this coming week on application, and uh, we'll see you Sunday night. If not, um, tune in next week, and hopefully the audio for the, the live session of the class will work this time, and, and you'll be able to hear some of the Q&A portions. That's, that's really some of my favorite part of the class is the Q&A. Uh, this, this class is asking incredible questions. Um, and so if, if you're interested in taking the biblical teaching lab, uh, our goal is to try to do this about once a year, and it'll probably most often be in the spring. So if you're not in it now, thanks for listening in, and hopefully uh, you'd be interested in jumping in uh, possibly next spring. 